The New Testament lesson is from Matthew 5:33 through chapter 6, verse 4. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your clo cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it is said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The word of the Lord. One Ancient Hope, it's, it's good to be with you this morning, and if this is your first time here, um, we're so glad that you can join us, and we do hope that we can get a chance to, to meet you, um, to say hello, to connect before you, you head back today. And right now, we are working through a series in the Gospel of, of Matthew, and, and in particular, we've come to the Sermon on the Mount, which is where we've been for the past few weeks. And, and in the Sermon on the Mount, what we find is, is this beautiful, compelling form of life that God calls us to. And our hope, God's hope for this, is that our hearts would, would be captured by this form of life, that we would desire it, that we would be compelled by it, that we would be attracted to it. And it's in that hope and it's in that promise that God gives us that we come before our Lord in prayer. God our Father, thank you for these words. Thank you, Father, for the life that you've, you've called us to. And first and foremost, Lord, thank you for your gift of Jesus Christ who makes this life possible. It's in the promise that you have given to us in him that we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I've, I've heard before uh, the Christian faith, or, or faith in general, compared to, to riding on, on an airplane, and, and I hope this is, a, is an illustration, a comparison that can connect with both 
children and adults. Because, right, if you're on a plane, then you have faith in the plane. If, if, you, weren't, if, if you weren't on the plane, you wouldn't have any faith in the plane. You wouldn't be on the plane. And because you're there, because you're on the plane, you absolutely will reach the destination that the plane is going to. But, of course, on the plane, there's room to grow in faith. If we only have a little bit of, of faith in the plane that we're on, then we'll likely spin the ride in, in terror with our, with our fingers clenched into the seat, you know, always wondering, is the plane going to crash? But if we have a lot of faith in the plane and we're confident that we're going to reach that destination, then we'll have a very different experience. Not only will we not be terrified, but we'll be able to take the focus off of ourselves, off of our terror, off of our worry. We'll even be able to help, to, to serve, to attend to the other passengers. We'll be able to focus on, on their needs. And maybe even we'll be able to enjoy the plane ride. And of course, those with only a little faith in the plane and, and those with much faith in the plane, well, they're both going to get to the same place. But the amount of faith they have, well, it makes for very different trips. And this is not unlike the Christian faith. If you have true saving faith in Jesus Christ, then you will absolutely receive what God has promised. But if you have a different, if you have a, a lesser amount of that faith, it will make for a very different kind of life. Again, we will receive what God has promised. We will receive Christ himself. We will receive loving communion with God, we will receive peace and fellowship with neighbor, and one day we will receive a fully restored creation free from all corruption and free from all sin. And if we have faith in Christ and we are united to Christ, this is absolutely our destination. Christ will take you there. There is no question, no doubt about that, but our faith must grow throughout this life. Like the passenger who grows in faith on the plane and so can enjoy the ride and serve the passengers around him, so too must we grow in our faith in Christ. If we live like the passenger who closes their eyes in terror, whose nails are stuck in the seat, well, our faith must grow. We must learn to grow in our trust and our confidence in Jesus Christ. Because the more that we trust in Christ, the better we will live this life. And when we learn to trust, we will know that whatever happens, Christ will work all things for our good. And we'll grow as we learn to appreciate the good gifts that God has given us, most importantly, himself. And we'll learn to serve and to attend to our neighbor. The more faith we have in Christ, the better we will spend this plane ride that is taking to God, taking us to God and his restored creation. And having faith and growing in faith, well, this is foundational to the good life, to happiness, to flourishing, to the life that God calls us to, to the life that we see outlined here in the Sermon on the Mount. And being strong in faith and trusting in God, that is the difference between simply enduring and actually enjoying the trip. And it's important to remember, again, that the Sermon on the Mount, what we find is a way of life. And as the title suggests, Christ preaches the Sermon on the Mount on a mountain. Not a surprise, right? But this is not the first time that a leader of God's people has addressed a crowd from the mountain. 
Matthew wants us to remember Moses, who comes down from Mount Sinai and teaches to his people the Ten Commandments of God. And in fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, what we have is a kind of exposition on the Ten Commandments, because everything that Christ says here, well, it's already contained in the Sermon on the Mount. We used this, this illustration last week, but, but Christ is like the light that brings the image of a Polaroid picture in, into view. And I do realize that's a bit of, of ancient technology. Hopefully it's not sort of a, a cannonball illustration at this point, but I hope some of you at least remember Polaroid pictures. And in that picture, the image is already there. The light doesn't change or abolish the picture. It just brings it out. It shows us the detail. It shows us the clarity. And in the same way, Christ does not change or abolish the moral law of God. He brings it out in its full detail, in its full clarity, so that we can finally see what it really is. But even with that, in addition to that, foundational to all of these Ten Commandments is trust. And we see this in the very first commandment that Moses gives God's people. You shall have no other gods before me. And theologian, pastor, reformer Martin Luther, he puts great emphasis on this first commandment. He says that the first commandment means, it means that all of our faith, all of our trust, all of our confidence has to be placed upon God. Luther says that we never get past the first commandment. In fact, following all of the other nine commandments just is the working out of this first commandment because each thing we do should be an expression of our faith, of our trust in God. If we break any commandment, it's because we're placing trust in something other than God. When we rest our hearts on approval, well, we lie and omit the truth. When we rest our hearts upon professional success, well, we work without end and we sacrifice our family and relationships. When we rest our hearts in our own vengeance rather than the good justice of God, well, we become defensive and cruel and repay evil for evil. And all of these actions overflow from faith, from trust, from confidence in something other than God. And each of these actions just is breaking the first commandment. And the good life that God calls us to in the Ten Commandments is a life of trust. And this is the very same life that Christ calls us to in the Sermon on the Mount. Again, as we've talked about, Christ's moral tradition within which he's operating is the moral law of God. And to be rightly directed to this, we've, we've been talking about how we need the virtues, these beatitudes, these nine virtues that Christ gives to us, and now we're moving into the section of, of practices where Christ is showing us how to grow in these virtues, how to grow in the Beatitudes. And, and to be sure, when we look at our passage today, any of the nine Beatitudes could be used to better understand what Christ is telling us. But I want to draw attention to two particular Beatitudes, ones that bring our trust in God to the forefront. Happy, flourishing, are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Happy, flourishing are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And so I want to look at this passage under two sections, the flourishing of meekness and the flourishing of peacemaking. Let's start first with the flourishing of meekness. Again, Christ tells us, happy, flourishing are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 
And this might at first seem disconnected from trust, but that's not so. Meekness is the very posture of trust in God. And in the Greek word here, praus, it does not mean weak. In fact, as, as one Greek dictionary tells us, it represents character traits of the noble-minded, the sage who remains meek in the face of insults, the judge who is lenient in judgment, and the king who is kind in his rule. What we have here are persons of high positions who refrain from using their power and their resources for their own self-interest, often for the sake or at the sake of their own loss and, and pain. And we find a, a striking example of this in the Bible. Think of David. At one point, David is on the run from King Saul because Saul wants to kill him. Saul knows that God has promised to give the kingdom to David, and Saul seeks to keep David, sorry, to destroy David to keep that from happening. And we find in 1 Samuel 24, David actually has a chance to kill Saul. Saul unknowingly enters a cave where David and his men are encamped. David can kill Saul, but he refuses. Instead, he only cuts a bit of cloth from his robe, and David tells his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. David refuses to get what God has already promised him in the wrong way. God has already promised that David would become king, but that does not mean that David can take that in any way that he pleases. If it did, well, then he would have killed Saul right then and there. David knows and trusts that when it is the right time, God will give him what he has promised. Meekness, then, is refusing to take things, even good things, in the wrong ways, especially when we have the power and the resources to do so. Meekness, then, is, is a kind of gentleness. For instance, when, when you're holding a baby, well, you should be gentle. And when you're gentle, that means you're not using all of your strength. You're holding back your strength so that you don't hurt the baby. But if you didn't have any strength, well, then you couldn't be gentle because you wouldn't actually have any strength to hold back. Gentleness is not using all the strength that you have. And this is a matter of trust. This is a matter of meekness. Because that's what meekness is. It's holding back our strength for the love of the other. The reason that David can refrain from killing Saul is because he trusts God to orchestrate his life. He trusts God to bring about the right things in the right way at the right time. David is like the passenger who can, in, who can rest and serve others on the plane because he trusts what God will bring into his life. And this brings us to the first practice that Christ speaks of in this passage. Christ tells us, let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Well, in today's passage, Christ does warn against oath-making, if you'll remember, but the Christian tradition does, does not understand or has not understood this as a condemnation of any oath whatsoever. There are legal circumstances where we have to take oaths. But what Christ is telling us is that in our everyday speech, oaths should not be necessary. What we say should simply be true. And what enables this? Well, one thing is meekness. 
And following the first commandment, as, as David did, we come to trust God. And what that means is that we don't use words as a means of self-preservation, as a means of self-enhancement, as a means of achieving our own self-interest. Rather, our, our words, like everything in our life, become means of trusting God. Because think about it. If you lie about something, you are assuming that the person you're speaking to can give you something better than God. If you lie about your taxes, you're assuming that the IRS can give you a big refund that's better than God. If you lie about how much work you've done, you're assuming that your boss can give you a promotion that's better than God. If you mute and downplay your Christian convictions in order to receive approval from a crowd, well, you're assuming this crowd's approval is better than God. If you hide your Christian convictions to pursue a romantic relationship with someone who does not follow Christ, well, then you're assuming that their love is better than God's love. And in that moment, you are trusting something else more than God. And without trust in God, we cannot have true meekness. All we can have is using every single resource we have to get the best for us right now to kill or be killed, to make the other look bad so that we can look better. Lying is simply the way that we worship, that we trust something other than God with our mouths. But Christ calls us to something simpler. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Words are not the things that we use to manipulate others in order to get what we want. Again, words are ways that we show that we trust God. And in a world of anxiety and outrage and fear, nothing speaks louder than a peaceful word of certain hope and certain trust. In a world where people are destroyed by social media for saying something out of line with a particular social or political agenda, nothing speaks louder than an honest admission and confession of wrong. But to do this, we must truly have trust. And this connects with the final section of the passage we've looked at today. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Recall that Christ tells us that we must not practice our righteousness in front of others. We must do it in secret. And when he's talking about this, Christ speaks specifically of giving to those in need. And we should take note here, and commentators point this out, that Christ assumes that all of those who profess to follow God are giving to the needy. And this should be a convicting charge to the church. But Christ places the difference in whether they do it in public for all to see or whether they do it in secret where only God can see. In reflecting on this passage, theologian Peter Lightheart, he makes the following point. The central underlying question about these secret practices of righteousness is the question of what God we are serving. Who is watching us? Which is to say, who is our judge? If we trust God above all else, then God is our greatest judge, and we will seek to please him over the crowd. And this is especially important today because the public has taken on a new dimension with the advent of things like social media. Now we are able to document all of our lives for public consumption and an enduring, a common temptation here is to publicly share, for instance, any pictures we might have of us serving the needy. We post it, we receive the approval of the crowd, an, an approval that can actually be quantified in likes, but Christ warns us that these likes are, are our reward. 
And this makes sense because if that approval is what we most seek, then this is the reward that our heart desires. We've sought the unstable, ever-shifting approval of the crowd, and for that moment, that's exactly what we've earned. But what would it mean if we were willing to do all of these things in secret? Well, it would mean that the audience that we most care about is God himself. It would mean that God is your judge, that God is your actual God, that God's approval is your greatest concern. And if that's the case, then absolutely God would be your greatest source of trust. Therefore, these practices, they're related. If you have trouble with honesty, well, practice giving generously in secret. By practicing giving in this way, you will lessen the unhealthy trust with which you cling to things other than God. You'll learn to value God's judgment and approval above all else, and you'll learn to rest your trust and faith in Him. And when you do this, you will learn to speak more honestly. Christ is telling us that all of these things are related and that we must learn to trust in God. Because remember what the Beatitude tells us, happy, flourishing are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And take note, how is it that the meek receive the earth? Well, it's by inheritance. But inheritance is not something that we earn. We receive an inheritance by virtue of who we are. Most primarily, we inherit something by virtue of being a child, and so to be truly meek and to rest in this inheritance, we must not only believe that God is good and powerful, but we must also know and trust that we are beloved children of God. And this brings us to our second and final point, the flourishing of peacemaking. Why peacemaking? Well, again, recall the beatitude, Happy flourishing are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And as children of God, we receive the inheritance of God. And, and peacemaking and inheritance, they're, they're directly connected here. We often think of peace as a, as a negative thing, as, as an absence of conflict. But biblical peace is primarily a positive thing. It's God's flourishing for us in the world, what the Old Testament will call shalom. And as warmth is not just the absence of cold, and as light is not just the absence of darkness, so biblical peace is not just the absence of conflict, but it's the fullness of life that God calls his people to. And this, this peace is our inheritance. For instance, if, if you inherit your parents' business, it makes a huge difference if you've actually been working for this business all of your life. If this business is already what you know, already what you've loved, already what you've worked to grow and to foster, well, the last thing that you would ever want to do is sell that business for money. This is not what you've spent your life for. Well, in a similar way, the fullness of biblical peace is both our business and our inheritance. We love it, we work for it now, and one day we will receive this peace in full. But what does this peace look like? Well, it surprises us. For instance, Jesus tells us, You have heard that it was said, An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. 
And remember, Christ comes to fulfill the law, not to change, not to abolish it. And so we have to ask ourselves a question here. Why does it seem as if Christ is speaking against Scripture? Because actually Christ is quoting Scripture here. He's quoting from Exodus 21, which is the chapter that comes immediately after Moses comes down from Sinai and gives the commandments to the people. The full passage reads, When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judgment, as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. And so we have to ask, what is going on here? Is Jesus contradicting Scripture? Well, here's what I think is, is going on. In the Reformed tradition, of which Presbyterianism is a part, we've historically separated the Old Testament law into three different parts. We have the moral law, which is summarized in, in the Ten Commandments. We have the sacrificial law, which is brought to completion through Christ, our great high priest, and our perfect sacrifice. And then we have the, the civil law, which, which worked to structure the, the civic laws of the, the nation of, of Israel. And the passage we just read is part of the civil law. And of course, one role of the civil law is to prescribe punishments for, for unlawful behavior, punishments that come from breaking the Ten Commandments. But if we never broke the Ten Commandments, then we wouldn't need these punishments. There's a sense in which the civil law presupposes sin. It presupposes that the moral law will be broken. It presupposes that we live in a fallen world. But if we fully followed the Ten Commandments, we wouldn't need eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth. We'd never have a situation like the passage where men strive against one another and carelessly strike a woman and do harm to an unborn child. What we have here is social fallout, neighbor attacking neighbor, and we find this because we live in a fallen world. And so Scripture gives us rules for regulating these kinds of things. However, Christ calls us to something different here. He calls us to the fullness of peace and the flourishing for all. And this is especially important in a political landscape full of false alternatives for justice. For instance, there, there's a great book, Compassion and Conviction. It's put out by the AND campaign, and, and what it gives Christians is a kind of primer on civic engagement. And the authors, they call us to reject the either-or questions that we so often find in our present moment. Uh, either-ors that actually relate directly to this eye-for-eye -eye situation that we find in Exodus 21. The authors of the book, they, they pose the following false alternatives. Do you advocate social justice or family values? Do you support women or are you against abortion? Do you love the poor, or do you believe in personal responsibility? Then the advisors, or the authors, they tell us the following. Don't answer those questions, or at least not in the way that they're asked. They're based on a false premise and thus create a false dilemma for Christians. This is what happens when we allow the world to frame the questions and the issues for us. What biblical peace does is it, it promotes a justice that refuses to be divided along our present political lines. It's a fullness of flourishing for everyone, every man, woman, and child. And it's a fullness that also at present recognizes the need 
for the civil law and the punishments that it prescribes in a fallen world. Because if we expect perfect flourishing and perfect justice in our present moment, our hearts will be broken. Yes, we work for it, but it will only fully come about when our inheritance comes. And on that day, the civil law will pass away because the moral law will be our greatest delight and we will follow it fully. But now we, we need the civil law. And there's certainly a place for legal punishment. Jesus is not calling us to let perpetrators of serious crimes go on without any retribution. Recall in an earlier section of the sermon, the section on anger, Jesus actually validates the purpose of the law court. This text can never be used as a call to resign ourselves to abusive situations. Remember that the civil law is meant to help preserve the Ten Commandments. But to use this text in a way that would undo that, undermine the ethics of the Ten Commandments, would, would go against what Christ is saying. But for now, at present, Christ is telling us that we are called to the beautiful life that's prescribed in the Ten Commandments, even in a fallen world where we need the civil law. And Christ calls us to bear the insult of the slap without retaliation. He calls all of us to give generously. He even calls us to let ourselves be taken advantage of. And the only way that we can do this is through trust. A deep, deep trust and confidence that because of God's great plan for us, we will miss out on nothing. Yes, in this world, we will be charged too much for things. We will be treated unfairly. We will be cheated, passed over, lied to, dismissed, and disparaged. But if we are in Christ, we will absolutely miss out on nothing. And so if we are charged too much, Jesus is saying, relax, it's okay. Yes, it's frustrating, but let this injustice make you crave that inheritance even more. The inheritance that you're promised as a child of God. This world will break your heart, and that's precisely because you are meant for so much more. And how do we know this? Well, because we are children of God, and here we come to an interesting part of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, you've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And look at this first line. The, per, the first part actually is from Scripture, uh, that part of loving our neighbor, but the second part is not, that part about hating our enemy. You won't find that in the Old Testament. And what Christ is doing is attacking faulty interpretations of Scripture. And of course, in our present moment, we rightly attack hate. And so we might be tempted to think that certainly this passage, this passage about hatred, well, that's not necessary for us, as enlightened, modern people, we don't hate. But Jesus is calling us today to examine our lives and to realize that we are guilty of the same things. We just use different language. For instance, in her fascinating book, Strange Rights, scholar and, and journalist, uh, Tara Isabella Burton, she categorizes a number of spiritualities in our modern world, and, and one of which is the self-care movement approached in a certain way. Approached in a way, Burton writes, where people don't serve your needs, people who don't serve your needs or optimize your experience are more often than not labeled toxic, language that is at once medicalized and spiritual. Burton then goes on to quote from one article that's titled, How Being Selective About the People You Keep Around is an Important Form of Self-Care. 
And the author of this article commends a practice she learned from a friend. She writes, uh, the author of the article writes, every now and then, this friend creates a list with two columns, people who invigorate me on the left, people who deplete me on the right. She categorizes friends, coworkers, acquaintances, and those she's newly met into one of these two sides and cuts ties with anyone on the right. That might sound a bit harsh to some of you, but think about it. Why waste your energy and time on people who don't add any value to your life? And so in our modern culture, we may pat ourselves on the back that we've moved past the archaic language of hating our enemy. However, we do the very same thing by prioritizing, prioritizing this kind of self-care and labeling certain people as toxic, as depleters, as people who add no value to our life. Yet Christ, he calls us to something different. He calls us to love those who we might be tempted to deem toxic or depleters, who we think have no value. Christ calls us not to divide the world into neighbors and enemies, but he also calls us not to divide the world into those who invigorate and those who deplete me. And how does he do this? Well, he calls us to look to our Father in heaven. Christ says, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And what does perfect mean here? Well, the Greek word here is, is teleos, and it speaks of a perfect fullness, completeness, wholeness. It's something coming to full fruition. It's something telos. For, for the acorn to be teleos is to be the oak tree. For the tadpole to be teleos is to be the frog. But of course, God does not become teleos. God has fullness of life in himself from all eternity. But God is like a fountain that overflows, and God's fullness of life and joy overflow onto us. And it's important to notice then that teleos also speaks of giving, because there's one other time that we find teleos in Matthew, and that's in Matthew 19. When the rich young man comes to Christ and asks, Teacher, what good deed must I do in order to have eternal life? Jesus eventually answers, If you would be teleos, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. And so how does one become teleos here? By giving all that one has to the other for the sake of the other. And we can see how this goes hand in hand with meekness. If meekness is refraining from using our power and resources to take from the other, then teleos is using our power and resources to give to the other. The rich young man, well, he rejected teleos and he goes away with sorrow. However, his question is wrong from the start. The question is not what good deed must I do to have eternal life. Rather, the question is how much, how must I inherit eternal life? How, how must I become a, children, a child of God? And the answer is not through being teleos yourself, but through the self-giving teleos of God. Not only does Christ tell us that God gives all humans the good gifts of rain and sunshine, the good gifts of creation, but we also know that God has given us the good gift of his Son, Jesus Christ. For Christ just is the peacemaking of God. Christ is God become human to reconcile us to himself. In the perfect teleos giving of God, Christ gives his life for us on the cross, taking the punishment that we deserve for breaking the law of God. Tooth for tooth and eye for eye. 
Christ has suffered the punishment that for all the ways that we have rejected the life that God intends for us. He's been killed, all of him. Both his body and his soul have received the suffering that our human body and soul deserve. Body for body, soul for soul, all of the punishment has been paid. And Christ has lived the perfect life of love, pouring out his telios on all that he meets. He's lived the life we should have lived. He's died the death we should have died so that God can make peace with us. And again, this is not just the absence of conflict, but the fullness of the true human life. Yes, we can experience this now, but in the future, we will inherit this in full. As children of God, as brothers and sisters of Christ, we will inherit the earth from our Father, a perfectly restored creation free from sin, and most importantly, the fullness of loving communion with God. But we must receive this teleos, this self-giving. God gives us the sun and the rain, and we do well to receive them, for instance, by making crops. But God also gives us his son, and we must receive him by faith to enjoy the fullness of peace that God calls us to. Place your faith in him. Get on that plane. And once you place your faith in him, learn to grow in it evermore. Learn to enjoy the plane ride. Learn to rest in him. Learn to serve and love your neighbor. Happy, flourishing are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Trust that God will give you every good gift that you need, for he has already given you the greatest gift of all, his son, Jesus Christ. Happy, flourishing are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Trust that you are a child of God because God in Christ has made the fullness of peace with you. Trust, trust, trust Christ and receive all of the happiness and the flourishing that God longs to give you in his most gracious timing in the most gracious of ways. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you, Lord, that you have poured out yourself for us in your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that we might receive him in faith, Lord, and that we might grow in that faith, that you might help us to grow in trust and confidence in you, and so learn to better live the life that you have called us to. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.